tonight, what I want to talk to you about is kind of a continuation from last week. And I'm sorry for the fire hose last week. Um, tonight is really the message I want to talk last week, but I felt that we kind of need to give ourselves a, a biblical framework because I'm really concerned that the church these days and some movements are so much more about revelation and extra biblical without the biblical. And so it was important for me last year to just smatter us with just the three-dimensional view about this topic of revelation and particularly the truths around having the mind of Christ as 1 Corinthians 2.14 or 2.16 tells us and the implications of that and the result of that about having divine revelation and about what revelation is, is it's the unveiling of spiritual realities, truths and the thoughts of God. And the revelation, as we looked at it last week, it doesn't create new truth. I mean, if we're like, I mean, that's how cults kind of get started, isn't it? It's like, I have a new truth and I'm supposed to marry my dog. You know, like that, that doesn't fly too well. That's not the revelation we're talking about. It, it exposes what's already there. And when Jesus came, he says, behold, the kingdom is at hand. He wasn't like, hey, look, I created a kingdom. No, he just opened your eyes to see actually what was already there. We didn't need to look at some of those new in, in creation, but we just need to change our perspective on it. And so I've been contemplating this thing that, that revelation, if we have the mind of Christ, should be normal Christian activity. If you have the mind of Christ, God wouldn't give you the mind of Christ that had no thoughts. It's kind of like giving you a TV that doesn't work. It's kind of useless. And so the notion that I have the mind of Christ and gosh darn it, maybe the mind of Christ actually has divine thoughts and maybe moving me and inspiring me to be led by the Spirit of God. And the purpose of revelation is to bring transformation. That's why we're all here. We're not here to have our lives suck less. We're not here to have like things just go okay. We're actually here and have the mind of Christ and have it in our hearts so that we would actually be transformed. One of the scary verses is 1 John 2, 6. It says, whoever claims to live in Christ will live as he lived. Whoever claims that fellowship with him will live as he lived. That doesn't mean that we would have the same discipline, that we would grow hair long, that we'd become a carpenter, that we would carry lambs around. You know, like it's not about that. It has nothing to do about looking like Jesus. It doesn't have anything about the sandals. But what it means is that we would see and think and respond as Jesus did. That's why it's key to know that when we have the mind of Christ, we're instructed, if you have fellowship with him, live like Jesus lived that we know that he is the empowerment of that. The way to live as Jesus lived is to think like Jesus thinks. This is a present tense, thinks. Now, how many know that it wasn't that he's still dead? No, it's he is risen. Jesus is alive, amen? amen. How, how many know that Jesus isn't on vacation? He's like, man, that was some hard work and now I'm gonna kick back, right? <laughs> if we have the mind of Christ and he is risen, he's active, surely that our minds must be connected to, the, to his divine presence for our instruction. And that's only made possible through the mind of Christ. And how we know that we don't battle for the flesh, the battle's for our mind, isn't it? I mean, you can have this flesh, I mean, it's not much to battle for, but what <laughs> Satan really wants, why are you laughing? <laughs> it's for our mind. The flesh is just a means to mess up your mind. If you don't know that, you're, man, let me free you with that truth. The only reason your flesh is being inflicted is so that it can get to your mind and mess it up. Why? Because you have the mind of Christ. Am I making sense? So how is it that if every one of us in this room, if you are in Christ, that you have the mind of Christ, how is it that everybody who has the mind of Christ can live without the power of revelation in their life? How is it possible that millions and millions of Christians can have the mind of Christ but yet be ineffective and not transformed? 
So that's what I share with you tonight. And I'm going to go as, as far as I feel um, I should. And if we go, um, we'll just see where we go. All right. Is that cool? Yes. All right. Number one is things that will keep you away from walking in revelation with God is an incomplete response to God. An incomplete response to God. Hebrews 6.1, this is a paraphrase for me. It's in a larger context, but the meat of it is perfect. I'm just going to give you the meat. It says, repent from dead works and, everyone say and, and to faith in God. How many grammar scholars here know that when you say and, it means like two things? We're going deep tonight, right? <laughs> repent from dead works and to faith to God. It's a two-step action. And what we, we see is that you, you can repent. Remember, like, repent means not to feel sorry. It's not, oh, look, I'm so sorry. No, it's actually to turn around, to turn away, to change your mindset. So it's repent from dead works and to faith to God. It's two parts there. The first part is repentance. The second part is revelation. And last week, we understood that a little great verse in 2 Corinthians 3 says, but whoever turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Remember, revelation reveals what was already there. The veil is taken away. Whoever turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Hebrews 6, repent from dead works and turn to faith to God. What does that mean? It means that many of us have turned enough to be forgiven, but not to see the kingdom. You can still repent from your sins and be forgiven, and you can be going this way, but never have your eyes towards God. How many know that you can repent, but still be in bondage? Just because you repent, it doesn't mean that you are seeking God. It's possible that you have repented and are forgiven, but you're still blind in regards to the thoughts of God. You can turn around, but so many of us are still looking at like, whoa, look what I did. Look what I did. And Jesus is saying, repent from that. You turn, and you turn to faith to God. And when you do that, that's when revelation comes. It'd be a lot easier if it said, repent from dead works, and look up the situation in the index of the user manual. That's what we want. We mess up, we're like, we want to know specifics. And so to say that repent from dead works and to faith to God, it says to turn your mind, change the way you're thinking and turn your mind towards something that is intangible. That's something that's going to cause you to be challenged. Because how many know that it wouldn't be faith if there wasn't any mystery to it? Faith requires belief. Does it not? Hebrews 11 says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Many people have a hard time turning towards faith because faith doesn't extend beyond God exists. There's so many Christians in this day that their faith stops at there's the existence of God. And it doesn't extend anywhere beyond that. But the scripture says that the idea is that we would turn into an area that at the surface seems like it has no answers for us because it's filled with mystery. It says in there, when we turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted. So it's an act of faith that we change our mind, we turn to the Lord, and that the veil is lifted. But what I'm trying to get at is that an incomplete response to life, that we can be so busy looking at what we're supposed to be repenting from that we never focus our eyes on God. Are you with me? That's why we make it such a big deal about don't be impressed with your shame. Don't be impressed with your sin. We can get so fixated on it. And, and God is like, okay, repent from it. Change your mind, change direction. But there's a second step as you turn to faith toward God. And when you turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted. Number two, for why Christians who have the mind of Christ do not walk in the power of revelation is this, is refusal to embrace mystery. 
Refusal to embrace mystery. Profound revelation comes with your ability to embrace mystery. Living in the richness of God requires that you can balance revelation, what God thinks, what he is stirring in me, like the spiritual realities and truths and mystery, unanswered questions, things that we don't have a box for our theology to work in. And if you can walk in the call of God with revelation saying, I know God where you want to take me. And if you can walk in there and not be pulled off the wagon by mystery, unanswered questions, hardships, then you will understand the richness of God's call for your life. Let me say it another way. Is that revelation is a mental cross, a crossroads that we're at. On one end, we have powerful revelation. Wow, God, you're doing this in my heart. Whoa, this is great. And then the other side, we have a mystery. We have a stumbling block, if you will. Maybe it's a death in the family. Maybe it's something that happened that you can't explain. A mystery entered your life that has no theological explanation. The challenge is, will you be able to walk forward in the revelation that God wants to do in your life or will you wait until this is answered? Are you guys with me? Will you be able to continue walking forth in the face of unanswered questions? Or are you going to stall your growth? You're going to stall the revelation because you're like, God, I haven't had my answer here. Will the unanswered questions in life, faith, in the world, or God, will it keep you from walking forward in your faith? I wonder how many Christians have like started really zealous for Jesus and like, yeah, and then one issue caught them up and now they're stuck in neutral. So which will win? But the challenge is that the drive for explanation in our culture and in church in general, it's so strong. Leaders are forced to control and to answer things because people are demanding answers. We're in an age where we can, we have the world's information in our pocket. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked at how many times someone asks a question, I'm like, hold on, let me just, two seconds and I'll find out. I mean, the world's information is right here. There's, we can find Anything. You can look up any Greek word in four and a half seconds. You can look up any fact. What's the land speed of a cheetah? I mean, the world's information is accessible to us like that. And yet, we come into the realm of spiritual realities, truths. We come into the reality of, wow, there's bummer things that happen in the world. And we get caught up because we want the immediate explanation. We want the answer. And leaders are forced to try and control this and to try and make up answers and and God isn't given any, and it poses a big challenge. Why? Because sometimes God is saying, this is a lesson that you will need to walk without explanation. The lesson you need to walk without explanation is a journey of that turning towards faith to God. Repenting, turning towards faith. And what I've learned is that just because I don't have an explanation doesn't give me an excuse to make one up. Just because I don't have an explanation doesn't give me the permission to make one up. God may not always give us an explanation, but he'll always give us choices for how he wants us to respond. There's many unanswered questions. There's many things, but, but God gives us a choice and how do we want to respond. Are we going to let it stall us? Are we going to let it, you know, totally wreck us? Or are we actually going to say, God, you're all good and I'm going to keep going forward? I'm not going to let it slow me down. I don't need to have all the answers. The pride in us to try and have all the answers is killing our theology. It's killing the goodness of God to try and make sense of things that God doesn't give any answers to. And that's part of our world. But what you do with what you can't explain will determine your revelation. When I try to stop having an explanation in five really clever points and things like, I love debating. Like it's, it's, 
weird. Like it really can get me riled up. And when I stopped saying, like, trying to come up with like this complicated explanation for things, and I said, God, there's gonna be a lot of things I don't know. I don't know why there's dinosaurs. And you know, that they're gone now. I don't know. Was it seven days or was it seven trillion years? I don't know. And it's okay to say I don't know. Why does such and such person die of cancer? I don't know. Why is my original um, pastor in Santa Barbara, his daughter, I think was seven years old, had cancer four times and died this past year? I don't know. But what I do know is that God is not responsible for it. I can say I don't have the explanation, I don't have the reasoning, I don't have all that, but I do know faith towards, I know my faith is that God is all good and so that there is not caused from there. A third thing that ties into this is that people will create theology from discouragement. Unanswered questions, stumbling blocks, those issues, people will take those opportunities in their discouragement to create theology. Discouragement is the mother of all bad doctrine. That's true. Let me say it again. Discouragement is the mother of all bad doctrine. When Christians don't have a theological explanation for their discouragement, sometimes the easiest solution is just to make one up, right? <laughs> Let me give you this. This, this came across my Facebook today. In regard to this exact topic, I quote, a majority of sanctification in the New Testament is through affliction caused by God. People, people were persecuted, but it is God who sent them to be persecuted. People are martyred for his namesake. He is the cause. And then takes a kind of a shot at us and says that I left Epic because you believe in a tiny deity who fits in the box you're comfortable with. Ouch. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> And, and, but here's what I came to, like, so, so we have little faith to say that God is good. That, that's essentially what he's saying. Blaming God for all these things, and, and, and then to top it off, your little God fits in this little box. And I say it takes no faith to blame God for all hardship. It actually takes all the faith in the world to live in a world with all the hardship that we have and trust for an all-good God. That's what requires faith, does it not? But so much happens in the moments of hopelessness and discouragement that people begin to create systems of belief to explain what God isn't giving answers to. Yeah. Just like this guy. These complex systems of things and you know, pulling out this verse and this and, and cherry picking these nine things to create this one system to explain all the things that they're not getting answers from God to. Or worse, you know that Satan used scripture against Jesus to try and get him to commit suicide. Why do we look at any different today? That was 2,000 years ago. I'm sure Satan still has a lot of the same tricks. If he can convince us, his own followers, our good father, that he is the one giving us affliction, cancer, disease. I'm sorry, if I give my daughter a cut, I'm not a good father, right? You put people in jail for abusing their children, but then we give it a pass. Well, he's an all-knowing God. I don't know why he's, you know, it doesn't make any sense. We would never, ever adopt the same standards here on earth as that we assume that this all-knowing, mysterious God works in mysterious ways. Cut my arms off. I don't know why. It makes no sense. But people maintain these complex systems from discouragement to discouragement. How many know we're supposed to be going from glory to glory? Not from bummer to bummer. <laughs> going real deep tonight. 
But it's disappointment and discouragement that opens up your spirit for disease. What do I mean? Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Unanswered questions, discouragement without explanations makes the heart sick. Opens your heart for spiritual disease. Your discouragement does not have the authority to what Jesus proved in his character. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what happened in my life. It does not have the the authority to invalidate what Jesus proved here. How many know that Jesus is perfect theology? Jesus is perfect theology. I mean, body, soul, I mean, he was there. He is the perfect example for theology, but we modify the theology of Jesus and God to accommodate the disappointment in our life. But that's not the description of Jesus, is it? How many storms did Jesus bless? He's like, oh, that's a great thundercloud. Oh, bless you. Oh, tornadoes. Oh, I'm so glorified right now. He never did that. He never gave someone like affliction to say, oh, I can't wait for the character that's going to come from this disease. This is going to be great. I'm so glorified from that disease. He never did that. And because we feel it, that maybe that's what's the play. It doesn't mean it's true. It's easier to change our theology about the goodness of God than it is to change our discouragement and our mindset about our circumstances. Let me say that again. It is easier for you to change the theology about the goodness of God than it is for you to change your thinking about your discouragement. Water flows the path of least resistance. So does Christian theology. All the time, we're going to blame it on the most easy answer we can give instead of saying, I don't know, but it's not my papa. I don't know, it's not my dad. It's not a good father that does that. It's still, it's still horrible. But it's, I, I can tell you who it's not. I can't tell you why and what for and if those even have answers, but I can tell you with certainty who it's not. And so many people find, so many people feed themselves on what God isn't doing. Do you know people like that? They're fed by all the things that God isn't doing in their life. All the discouragement, all the things that are rough and and never comes through for them. And when you dwell on those things that haven't happened, you do one thing. You legitimize unbelief. When you dwell upon all the things that didn't happen right in your life, you are legitimizing unbelief. We have concepts about God that are based upon disappointment, not about revelation. And none of these feelings have the authority to cancel our revelation. And when God made it possible for the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead to dwell in you, it made powerlessness unacceptable and inexcusable. All of us, if you are in Christ, you have the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And then we're just like, oh, I just need, you know, God, I can't help. Really? Do you know what you have? Someday we're going to have to actually start believing what we've received. We're going to have to believe our own conversion and our own salvation. I mean, it's amazing. And how many know that, that the spirit is in you not like a lake, it's like a river? It's not a container. It says the spirit is like living water flowing from, that the spirit actually flows from us. It's not just this puddle. The spirit is meant to actually flow out. The spirit wants out of you (laughs) in the best way. How are you guys doing? You guys want one more? I only got one. 
last is, uh, again, remember, this is why Christians can have the mind of Christ and yet be powerless and not walk in the power of revelation. Last is for you tonight, is seeking a sign instead of revelation. Seeking a sign instead of revelation. You guys know the difference there? If you're not able to walk in faith with mystery and still seek revelation, you'll be a Christian who becomes dependent upon a sign. If you're not... (laughs) I love that. Don't stop doing that. (laughs) If you're not able to walk in faith with mystery and seek revelation... You'll be a Christian who seeks signs. And you'll be a Christian who becomes dependent upon signs. God gives signs to those who will notice them, not to people who are asking for them. Let me say that one again. God will give signs to people who notice them, not to people who ask for them. I don't know where I came up with that. It just felt like that's true. I don't have any better explanation for that, but I'm going to let it sit there. For the reason that I think that God gives signs and wonders to demonstrate his presence and his care, not to prove himself nor be tested. God, if you read the New Testament at all, you know that he does not, Jesus does not respond well to people asking him to prove himself. (laughs) And if you need God to prove himself once, you'll need him to prove himself again and again. And every other time you feel discouraged or you feel distant. And if we start having like God appear in tacos and fruitcakes and giving us all these signs and those things, it will simply make you dependent upon tacos and fruitcakes. It won't make you actually seek Jesus anymore. Are you hearing me? Jesus did signs and wonders all throughout his entire ministry. It's not like that was a foreign thing. Like, I don't know how often in the New Testament he's doing signs and wonders, but it was a lot. A whole lot. The fruit was self-evident. He did not need any further testing. But then the Pharisees come along here. Like, we want you to give us a sign and proof, and we want to test that you're the the Son of God. And Jesus said, an adulterous generation seeks a sign, and a sign will not be given. You turn the page. Jesus continues to do signs. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because doing the sign is not the issue. Your heart is the issue. It would attach your heart to a sign rather than the person who is giving the sign. And a sign is just that. It points. Right? It's like being in love with the fence post and not being in love with where it's pointing you to. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus wants you to be in love with the destination, not the thing that's pointing you to it. That's why Jesus used the word adulterous. That's kind of an intense word. Dependency on signs is actually unfaithfulness to your faith. If you're dependent upon signs with God, like, oh, just send me a bird or something, you know, like, you know, you do those things. It's being unfaithful to our faith because faith, again, is focused on the things not seen. How can you have demand to have things seen in signs and have that faith is certainty of the things unseen. You get what I'm saying? 
But that is not invalidated that Jesus does amazing signs and wonders because I love them. It's great, but I'm not seeking them like, oh, my life depends upon this. Jesus, if it's your sign that we're supposed to get married, have them text me. You know, like <laughs> those things. I made a lot of people feel really uncomfortable right there. <laughs> I'm just sorry, I'm just being honest. But faith that demands proof and signs is an inappropriate relationship between your heart and the signs. Revelation should not be, or signs should not be a substitute for revelation. Jesus didn't come to give you signs, he came to give you his presence. Jesus didn't come to give us signs, he came to give us presence. If Jesus came, but, but let's just hypothetically say, if Jesus came to give us signs and appear in tacos and fruitcakes and all those different things, then he just would have given his presence in a genie bottle, right? But he gave his presence in you. And when we understand that many times we, we ask God, give a sign, many times you are the sign. Yep. Many times you feel impressed in your heart, gosh, I should put... I don't know, $123.14 in an envelope and put it on someone's car. And they get it in this like $123 bill that they need to pay and they have 14 cents extra now. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you are the sign. God doesn't need to send manna because he has you. He doesn't need to send a cloud. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder when we have, you know, things with our disposal, we hear something that's like, oh, I just need God to come through it. And you have that thing that is, that come through for them. And we're like, well, God, it'll be interesting to see how you work this out. And we walk away. Sometimes we do not participate in the call of God because we forget that we are the hands and feet of Jesus and are waiting for some cloud to descend and lightning bolts to come down and, and be the miracle. When in reality... You have the mind of Christ. You are a living, moving, breathing sign at all times. You are the breakthrough that somebody right now is needing. And maybe you've never thought about it that way. You are the breakthrough right now that somebody else is desperately needing and longing for. People in the Old Testament, this is important to know, and I'm going to close with this, the bank can make their way on up, is people in the Old Testament always seeking a sign, right? We kind of pick up like the bad habits there. Like, hey, it worked for them, you know? <laughs> but those were different times. Why? Because God's presence dwelled within a temple, a tabernacle, which one person once a year could go in with a rope tied around his waist in case he was struck down dead inside. And so they had no context for the presence of God except when manna and birds and flames and pillars and things would appear and water would part. I mean, that was the only manifestations in which they could understand God's presence in those times. But again, where's God's presence now? It's in us. We don't seek nor need signs because we have it, the sign in us. We are the sign and if we are a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, 100%. You have the mind of Christ, 100%. If you're a Christian and you are still longing for the sign, I say to you with all due respect, you are not in 
connection with the Holy Spirit that's already inside you. When we seek signs, it's basically saying, my phone's broke. Because the answers and the, 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 the presence and the confirmation that we need actually dwells already within us. It's just, are we willing to connect to it? And I want us to live in realms where we can be powerful because we are powerful. Amen? Let me say that again. You can be powerful because you are powerful. A Christ life is great. Go through it. Awesome. It's not going to make you any more powerful. You know, it's actually just going to get the other junk out of the way. It's going to lighten the load. It's going to make you see like, oh, wow, I, I, I am a lot stronger. I have like the victory in me. And so we, we uh, I just want to encourage you guys just to um, tap into what is already at your hands. It's there. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.